by Passion Church, the DeSoto County campus, the fun church in Horn Lake, Mississippi. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church. All right, well, we've been talking about Does It Edify as our series that we've had on Wednesday nights. So we got a celebrity in the house tonight, uh, Mr. Jacob Bridges and the new preacher in the Passion Church. But that was a wonderful testimony, wasn't it? Young man seeking after the Lord. Man, it gets me excited. Isaiah 60, verse 18, has been our starting scripture for the last few weeks. It says, salvation will surround you like city walls. It'll encapsulate you. See, walls aren't all bad like the media tells you. (laughs) God's kind of walls keep out the evil and protect the good. You know, today I spent most of the morning at Germantown Methodist Hospital where uh, Jamie Burns, my guitar player for Soul Food, my wingman, is in there having uh, triple bypass surgery. They cracked him open. They went in there, had some work to do on his heart, right? But let me ask you a question. When they finish the work, do they just leave the walls open? They don't, do they? They close them back up. And he's got to be careful to watch those walls. Don experienced that, didn't he? You got you to protect <clears throat> what's on the inside. And that's what we've been talking about. We've been talking about Nehemiah. I thought we were just going to talk about building walls, but it seems to me that we're talking more about protecting the walls once they've been built. I always thought of Nehemiah as how to build the walls. I never saw it, but that's just the first few chapters. But it goes on, and it talks about how to protect your walls, how to close them back up so that nothing can get in there because out of the heart flow the issues of life. And, and, And our natural heart needs to be protected by a rib cage. And our spiritual heart needs to be protected by the walls of the Lord. You know, uh, a hedge of protection that we pray for. Salvation, what God has provided through Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, the salvation you received when you made him Lord of your life should protect your life like city walls. But it's our job to keep the walls up. To be a watchman on the wall. So let me recap briefly. We talked about Nehemiah was in exile in Babylon. Heard that the walls were broken down. Touched his heart. He, he fasted and told God, here I am. Send me. And God touched the king's heart to help, let him go and help him go. And sent him with stuff to do it with. Nehemiah was a deliverer, a restorer, and a builder. And you are too. In your own life and in other people's lives. And then once the walls got built, he put watchmen at the gates. We talked about that last week. To watch the gates. And we talked about how that refers to, in our lives, the gates of our eyes, the gates of our ears, the gates of our mouth. What comes and goes. Because that's a way for the enemy to get down into your heart. You know, you don't have to be laid wide open in the hospital for the enemy to get his hand in there. If you're watching things you ought not, it's planting seed, which will give you a harvest in your heart that you don't want. you got to see your heart as like a, a field. And with seeds that you're planting in it, whatever it coming in and out of your ear gates and eye gates and out of your mouth gate, your mouth gate actually exposes what's been coming in the other two. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth leaketh. It actually says speaks, but, and it'll tell on you. So if a cuss word pops out of my mouth tonight, you know, no. Dr. J. Vernon McGee says, eternal vigilance, I'm sorry, eternal vigilance is the price of Christian liberty. 
Eternal vigilance. That means you got to keep watching. You can't let your guard down. We're living in a society that the devil will make sure you'll regret it if you let your guard down for a minute. Eternal vigilance, though, will keep you in the midst of your Christian freedom. The free life that God wants, free from sin, free from the bondage, free from the results of sin, the consequences. And your salvation is like a city wall, right? But you know what? Your walls can be toppled again the second time as quickly as they were the first time. Most of you are sitting here tonight because in some point in your life, your walls just came tumbling down. The enemy just came in and took what he wanted, and you were at the end of yourself, and you cried out for help, and God rebuilt your walls. But you know what? The same sin that led you walls to tumble in the first place We'll tumble them again. And we talked about how people come in, they get their walls back right, and then they think they got it. I'm good now. I don't need that much Jesus anymore. And they go back out, and next thing you know, their walls are down again. So what did the people do? They began to watch the walls. God's people began to assemble together, like we're doing here tonight, which is a good thing. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some, not us. They began to read God's word. They had somebody come out and read the scriptures, the holy scriptures to them. They began to worship like we just did. And they began to institute God's ways. They began to search the scriptures and said, what did God tell us to do in the first place that we hadn't been doing? So they began to do those. One of the things they first they saw is said, hey, it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles. And they went camping together. We talked about that. That's all the Feast of Tabernacles seems to be is they would just go camping in fellowship. And so we talked about how, you know, fellowship is a good thing. The people, when they began to see how fun it was, how beautiful it is to serve the Lord, they got a couple of weeks under their belt, that feeling of being in God's presence and knowing that you're right with God, then they begin to repent. And they begin to weep about all the years that they had wasted. And they begin to look back. It's natural to say, wow, I could have been tasting this all my life. I could have been living in this place. And I've wasted so many years. And some of you feel like that sometimes. When you look back, you say, man, I, I, I was 32 years before I gave my heart to Jesus. And I Sometimes look back and I begin to want to just cry. Man, what could I have done in those 32 years when I was a young person? But you know what Nehemiah says? Don't weep. Focus on the future. Nehemiah says, don't look back now. That's over with. That's behind. Focus on the future. Because the joy of the Lord is the strength that you need to get through the future. Because you got battles ahead. You ain't got time to be looking back, having a pity party. You know who throws the pity party? The devil. Every time you're looking back and, and saying, woe is me and all that, you got to keep going forward. Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord will be your strength. So he calls all the leaders together and they begin to convene and talk about what are we supposed to do with the people? What is God's desire? And they begin to pray and stuff. And they be probably begin to throw up banners like us. God began to show them who they were and how they're going to do it and where they're going. And you know what happened? True revival broke out among the people. Do you see a parallel about what's going on here and now in the Passion Church with what went on in Nehemiah's day? Do you see a parallel with what's going on in your life right here and right now? What's happened in your past and where God's bringing you? I am amazed that this old book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament speaks on so many levels. I was just thinking it was a wall-building book. But it's so much deeper. What does real revival look like? I'm going to show you a picture of of the beginnings of real revival. How many would like to have a revival in the church again? We've got the walls up. We've convened and we're beginning to see where God's leading us. What do we do next? We'll turn to Nehemiah 10. 
What happens when God's people begin to put God first? We go down to verse 28 of Nehemiah 10, we begin to see that all, people, all God's people got together about three weeks after they read the scriptures. And they come together and they decide to make a vow to God. In verse 28 it says, Then the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temp- temple servants, And all who had separated themselves. Say separated. And all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God, together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand. Now, we ain't even got to the part where they make the vow yet, but I wanted to bring this out, that you'll never get to a place where you're really ready to, to make a vow to God, to a promise to God. You're willing to, to say, God, I'm real, willing to say yes to your commands until you separate yourself. Christians must separate themselves. And that's why you can't tell Christians today from pagans in America. That's why they have no power to witness That's why they have no blessing in their life because they haven't separated themselves from the things of this world. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things and I will welcome you. What does it mean if you touch their filthy things? If you're touching their filthy things, will God welcome you? Now, in here it doesn't say that we should come out from caring about people. It doesn't say that we should detest the people. But it's the filthy things. We don't detest unbelievers. We love and pray for and don't condemn the unbelievers. We share Jesus with the unbelievers. But we come out from among them and their filthy things and the vile things they do, we hate. We hate what God hates and love what God loves. God loves the people, but he hates the sin. And if we don't separate from the sin... We will fall back into it ourselves again. I thought to myself, when I'm preaching this, I'm thinking, you know, they made these vows to God. And sometimes you've made vows to God before. You've made promises to God. I've made promises to God. We want to please God. And it's like we break them and here we go again. And how many times in a day can he have to forgive me? So why do we make it again? And you see in the history of the Israelites, they would make a promise, they would break it. One generation would do it, the next one wouldn't. And it would just go on and on and on. And why do we even try to do what's right? But if we don't separate ourselves from sin, we'll fall back into it again. we got to live this life one day at a time. And if you have to get up and repent again today, then do it again. If you have to get up and say, this is a fresh start again tomorrow, then do it again. Keep repenting. Keep promising. Keep saying yes to God. Because sin is contagious. But holiness is not. You got to fight for holiness. And the way you fight for holiness is to separate yourself from sin that con- will is contagious that will infect you. 
You have to separate yourself. The Hebrew word for holy is kodesh. I guess I'm saying it right. But do you know what kodesh means? What does holy mean? It means apartness, set-apartness, separatedness, sacredness. All those mean to separate. God said, I am holy. I am set apart from filthy things. I am holy, therefore you be holy. Without holiness, no man will see God. And we're here tonight claiming that that's what we want, to see God, to experience God, to know the fullness of this salvation, to have these walls, and to live in this place with God. But we struggle with the separation from the things of this world. <clears throat> when I was a teenager, I think I told this story not long ago, but I didn't smoke dope. That was kind of unusual in my neighborhood. All my friends smoked the wacky weed. Now, I drank like a fish, but Mama told me don't do drugs and so I didn't do drugs. I wish she wouldn't have told me not to drink. <laughs> but she was on the drugs, so I was against drugs, and I wouldn't do it. And all my friends, they would say, here, take a toke of this. I'm like, no, I don't. They would make fun of me, but didn't, bo didn't bother me at all. I'm not doing drugs. And so I would not do the drugs. One day they had me in the back of a seat of their car, and they was trying to pass the joint to me. And I wouldn't take it. No, no, no. They was making fun of me, but I, it didn't bother me by that point. I had grown immune to it. So they got the bright idea they was going to roll up all the windows. And they was going to smoke, 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 and blow it in my face and get me high. He's never been high. Let's get him high. And so they did. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Even though I didn't smoke it, I never took it to my lips. Was I affected by it? I was too drunk. I don't know if I was or not. No. <coughs> what did he say? <laughs> I didn't smoke it, but was I affected by it? Why? Because I hadn't separated myself from it. Another question. Even though I was technically innocent of smoking dope, never smoked it in my life, completely innocent, would the police still have arrested me if, we'd have come, if they'd have come knocking on our window? <laughs> Another question. Even though... I didn't smoke dope, even though I don't smoke dope now. If I hang around people who do, and I come rolling up in the parking lot on a Wednesday night, and they roll the windows down like Cheech and Chong, and smoke comes rolling out the windows, and pastor gets out and says, hey, man, let's go, let's go have a sermon tonight, man. And I come walking in here. Even though I hadn't smoked dope it myself, is it going to be helpful to my Christian witness? Is it going to be impactful to my purpose? Not in a good way. When we go down to the jail, I can ask one question to the inmates. And if they would be honest, with that one question, I can tell them honestly, eyeball to eyeball, when you get out of here, it'll be about three months I'll see you back. And the question is, when you leave here, are you going to separate yourself from your old friends that got you, that you was hanging around when you got put in here?
Separate yourselves. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company will corrupt your good character. So, verse 28 says, The rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, all who had separated themselves from the pagan people of the land in order to obey the law of God together with their wives, sons, daughters, and all who were old enough to understand, verse 29, joined their leaders and bound themselves with an oath. They swore a curse on themselves if they failed to obey the law of God as issued by the servant Moses. They bound themselves. They made an oath to God and swore, man, a curse on themselves. Now, let me, before I go on, let me say this. First, don't bound yourself to an oath attached to a curse. That wasn't wise. Why do I say that? Because Jesus clarifies that a little bit more in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 33, he says, You also heard that our ancestors were told, You must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say to you, do not make any vows. Now, he's not saying you can't say, God, I want with all my heart to do this. He's not saying that. But he's saying don't make some ridiculous vows tied to a curse or I swear on my mama's grave. You know, I put my life on it. Now, we've already discussed how many times we've broke our promises in the past. Let's not compound our misery by making some vows we don't really want to make. I think it would be just good if you begin to say, yes, Lord, one day at a time. And say, God, with all my heart, I want to do these things. With your help, I know I can do these things. You begin to trust in the Lord and not in your own strength. Boy, they were really going out on a limb here, it looks like to me. Where was I at? They bound themselves with oath. Jesus said, but I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is God's footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair black or white. Of course, we know that not to be true today because of all the hair products. But verse 37 says, just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. So we know a little bit better about them boasting about what we're going to do today. James says, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know. But you can have a heart that wants to say, yes, Lord. And Lord, all that's within me, I'm going to try my best this time, Lord. Help me, Jesus. I want to do what you want me to do. There's something powerful, too, about telling God your intentions. There's been plenty of times when I, I wanted to stop something in my life and I would just try to do it. And I would say, I'm going to do this for God and I'd try to do it for God and I'd fail and I'd, I'd slip up and I'd slide back and I'd do it and I'd going back and forth and beat myself up, condemnation coming into the whole play. And you, you understand, we all have our weaknesses and place, places where we're susceptible to the enemy and we're fighting the good fight of faith, trying to win the battle. But I found this. If you will take it to God and before him say, God, I want to with all my heart, give me the strength. If you will say it before God, it will bring a whole lot of more weight to the issue than it had before when it was just you battling yourself. When you ask God for help and you come to him with a genuine heart, say, not making crazy vows, but saying, God, I want to. And as much as is within me, I'm doing this because I want to please you. There's something about that that makes it bigger to you. And I believe it, it, it calls on the help of the Lord. So it says they solemnly promised to carry out all the commands. 
regulations and decrees of the Lord. You see, they didn't pick and choose which ones they wanted to follow. They promised to follow all the commands, the regulations and decrees of the Lord. See, we got a, we got a disease in the church called selective Christianity. <laughs> selective Christianity is like when you champion sins that don't really tempt you, you know, you might go around saying, well, those homosexuals, they're terrible. That's awful. I couldn't believe that. But you don't say anything about gluttony or, or the things that you're battling, you know. Yeah, you, you didn't say nothing about adultery in there, you know, or fornication or lust or the things that may be tempting you. But you selectively champion the sins that you're against and, and you like to explain away the sins that you secretly indulge in. We all need to just be humble about this whole sin thing, all right? We're all struggling against stuff. And no sin is bigger than the other. But they're all ugly. And they're all nasty. We all need to separate ourselves from them. We all need to get real about them. Another form of selective Christianity, very popular in the Christian church today, is to sit in the service while the preacher preaches and shout, Amen, brother, to all God's commands, but leave out of there and not follow any of them. Selective Christianity, meaning that they select to mentally ascend to that point, but not physically complete that point. They're selective. They believe it in their head, but they don't believe it in their heart. Mental ascent. That's pretty selective. And if by reasoning you feel you can explain away a clear command of the Bible, you think that you can say, well, you know, that's the part I don't agree with in the Bible. You know what you just told me? That you think you're God. Because when it comes down to it, if it doesn't meet your approval, well, my thought process is superior to God's, and I'm going to trust my own instinct. And that's how we become selective. James 2.10 in the message translation says, you, can, you can't pick and choose in these things. Specializing and keeping one or two things in God's law and ignoring others. The same God who says, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. He also said a lot of other things. You know, back when I was growing up, there was a big cop-out that people used to say, they, the devil made me do it. Then a lot of people preached about that and said, you know, not really. <laughs> Probably wasn't the devil that made you do it. You know what today's big cop-out is? that I see a lot, probably the biggest cop-out in the Christian church. But God knows my heart. He knows I want to stop. Verse 30, it says, We promise not to let our daughters marry the pagan people of the land, and not to let our sons marry their daughters. That's more of that coming out from among them, right? And being you separate. They were vowing. They were saying their sons and daughters. I hope that meant them as well. Because we don't just put arbitrary rules on our kids that we don't follow. We wouldn't do that. But they vowed not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers. See, that's messed up in America too. We, man, we've messed that one up. But Paul tells us, he was speaking to those knuckleheads in the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 7.39, he said, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. In other words, marriage is forever. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But only if he loves the Lord. 
I think that's a big requirement that he's trying to make right there. And apparently they didn't get it because the second letter he wrote to the Corinthians in 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He just brought it out out into the open. I reiterate. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does yoked mean? That's like when you put two animals together in the same harness and they're working as one. Well, what is more yoked together than a husband and a wife when two become one flesh? Nothing is more yoked than a man and a woman in marriage. And he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. As a Christian dad, that was my main concern for quite some time. <laughs> not anymore. I love the, the young fellow that she has chosen now. Whew, thank you, Jesus. He's a good boy. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with dark? Now, I don't know if we got any, many single people in here, but I think Apostle Paul is just trying to save you much, much pain. I ain't kidding. I mean, that unbeliever, he may look cute, he may have a little six-pack, or I don't know. She may look good in her short shorts. I don't know what you're thinking. But they cannot love you with God's love because they don't have God's love. Here you are loving on them, sacrificially willing to give them everything, and they're just over there thinking about self. They don't know about God's love. They don't have it. The love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit once we get saved. They only know just a very shallow type of love. And if you're trying to marry somebody because they're cute, they will never fulfill the, your, the, the, they can't help you. They can't love you like you need to be loved, like God wants you to be loved. And they will never have the same goals and vision that you do because they don't have a sense of God's calling and don't care about it. You've got a heart for helping people and the lost, and you've got these plans that God's given you, and, and they aren't, they're not going to want to do it. And so you're going to be separated from your own spouse, going in different directions. And let me tell you what else. You're going to want to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, lead your children to Jesus, and there's no guarantee that they'll even allow that. They may mock the Christian faith to your children and lead them astray. And let me ask you this. Do you want your children and your spouse to go to hell and you go to heaven by yourself? What kind of future do you have with an unbeliever? Now, I know I'm just speaking to the choir here tonight, but maybe somebody will hear this and it will help somebody on a podcast. Maybe you know a single person. Send this to them because, look, they say, well, oh, but, but they're so cute. I know I can lead them to the Lord. Maybe, but maybe not. And that ain't a, oh. And maybe you're in for the worst experience of your life. I'm talking about worse than worse. I'm talking about generational curses you're beginning on your family tree. It ain't going to be pretty. Don't practice selective Christianity when it comes to picking a mate, especially. God says don't do it. Don't do it. All right, verse 31 of our text. I'm still in Nehemiah 10. Isn't this good? These are the things that they vowed to God. We also promise that if the people of the land should bring any merchandise or grain to be sold on the Sabbath or on any other holy day, we will refuse to buy it. Every seventh year, we will let our land rest 
and we will cancel all debts owed to us. In other words, they are promising to keep one of the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Do you know which one? To keep the Sabbath day holy. They're saying if somebody brings something on the Sabbath, we're not going to buy it. And, and we see some people practicing those kind of thoughts today. When, when these companies are doing ungodly things, Christians back off and don't buy their products. That's good. Don't feed in. Don't finance. They're evil. Come out from among them and be ye separate. But the promise here that they're making is to promise to keep the Sabbath. Now, you know, on six days the Lord worked, and on the seventh day he rest. And he commanded us to get a rest. But I always like to say, you know, in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilled the law, and that he personally now is our Sabbath rest, because we don't see in the New Testament any place that it says we're supposed to observe the Sabbath like they did in the Old Testament. Jesus is personally our Sabbath rest. We find our rest in him. So I'm not saying that you pick a day and you start arguing with the Seventh-day Adventists and you start arguing with these people and all these people just want to argue religion. I'm saying the principle is to learn to rest. If God needed to rest, I don't know if he really did, but he, he showed us that we certainly do. You need mental rest. You need physical rest. And you need spiritual rest to perform at your peak level. If you don't get your rest, you will drive yourself in the ground in any of three of those categories. And God is saying, these people are saying, we understand that God's trying to bless us by telling us to get some rest in these areas. And God was trying to bless us by giving us Jesus, where we can come to him any day, any time of the day, and find rest. John Piper said Jesus didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it out from under the mountain of legalistic sediment. Because that's what the Pharisees had done. You remember everything Jesus tried to do? There's a, oh, he's breaking the Sabbath. He did it on the Sabbath. He, they were so legalistic about the Sabbath. You could, they had all these laws that they had man-made traditions that you couldn't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, can I not pull a donkey out of the the ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you do that? Should I not heal this person on the Sabbath? Can I not do good on the Sabbath? Can I not eat when I'm hungry on the Sabbath? What have y'all made God's law, command that he gave to you to be a blessing to you, what have you turned it into? He says, Jesus didn't come to abolish the Sabbath, but to dig it out from under the mountain of legalistic sediment and give it to us again as a blessing rather than a burden. Man, people had turned God's sweet gift of rest into a list of do's and don'ts. But Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. And so, you want to observe the Sabbath in your life? See it as your spent, your spent time with Jesus. More so than anything, obviously, in the spiritual realm. You get your rest and ready, ready to go, you know, strengthen you in the spiritual. But also in every other realm, because everything flows and emits out of the spiritual first, right? As a man believeth in his heart, so is he. The spiritual things first, and then it grows out into your natural things and into your mind and all these things. So don't forget the Sabbath. These people were promising not to let buying and selling, the love of money, their jobs, things that, that they can buy with their money, all the commercial side of life, the business side of life, not to let that be first place in their life. To be balanced. Put Jesus first and everything else will come into balance. The command of the Sabbath Rest is similar to the command of the tithe, I believe. The tithe is, do you trust God with the, your 10% your of your income? Right? Do, do you trust me? That's what he's saying. If you, if you don't trust God 
with 10%, then you don't trust God the way you should. It's a test of your heart. And the Sabbath is pretty much the same thing. God's saying, what do you do with your time? You got seven days a week. I ask you for one. You know? So put God first. I mean, we could, we could go on and on, but it's important to come to church. It's important to worship the Lord. You guys are the next level Wednesday group. You're taking it to the next level. And you're only going to be blessed for it. Same way with your tithes. You take it to the next level. You give your tithes and you begin to give offerings. You put your trust in the Lord and see if he won't open the windows of heaven. Pour out a blessing. There shall not be room enough to receive it. It'd be wise to accept God's gift of rest and devote a holy day to loving on the Lord. That's about all I got. Guess I could go one more. Y'all want to go one more? All right, well, let's go to verse 32. We'll go one more. I really thought tonight we would get through this, this whole chapter, and we'd be into the next exciting part where there's a breach of the wall and that Nehemiah is going to have to deal with it. It's pretty cool, but I guess we'll have to get to that next week. But verse 32 says, in, in addition, they're still promising things. We ain't even nowhere near the end of the chapter. But all these things that they're promising are so good. In addition, we promise to obey the co command to pay the annual temple tax of one-eighth of an ounce of silver for the care of the temple of our God. This will provide for the bread of presents, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, and for the offerings on the Sabbath, the new moon celebrations, the annual festivals, for the holy offerings, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. In other words, you know, somebody had to buy the bread, somebody had to bring in the, the, the sacrifices to keep the temple moving, just like somebody has to keep the lights on here, and the water paid, and you know, uh, buy the tracks and, and provide the little gold fish that the kids eat. And, you know what I'm saying? All these things. There's a lot of expenses. I, I didn't know that a church has, but they do. And it's saying, in addition, we promise to obey to pay the annual taxes that will keep these things up. It says, it will provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. So they're, they're saying, we're going to make sure the temple is running. We're going to put the temple as a priority. We're going to keep the church as a priority, that it's a nice church, that it's running, that it's useful. We have cast sacred lots to determine when, and at regular times each year, the families of the priests, the Levites, and the common people should bring wood to God's temple to be burnt on the altar of the Lord of our God as it is written in the law. They're just saying we're going to give the things and the time necessary to keep uh, the house of God in running order. There was a time right after I got first saved that we were in that big old building that used to be, it's Trinity Baptist now, over on Colonial Hills. We about huge auditoriums set about 400 or so, and we, we were running about 200 at the time and growing. And, uh, and then our pastor had a stroke. And he was, man, he was a preaching machine, and everybody was loving to hear him preach, you know, and they were all excited about it, the church, and it was growing, and we were having revival meetings and stuff, and it was an exciting time. That was when I got saved. But then he had a stroke, and uh, it affected his speech, and he could no longer get his words out. I mean, hardly at all. And, I, and my heart breaks because the, he was such a man of God, and, and he couldn't get his words out. And I can't imagine, you know, it'd be like me all of a sudden next week I can't speak anymore. And he wouldn't quit trying to preach because that was his heart and he was believing God for a miracle that God was going to loose him from this because this didn't make sense. And he would get up and he would preach. I mean, he would try and try to, and, and he would try to get his words out and they just wouldn't come. And some of y'all were in here during that time. And it was a very difficult time for our church, and it was heartbreaking to see this man try to overcome and believe God for his voice back. 
but it didn't come. During this process, this church that was running 200 or so, next thing you know is running 100 or so. And we're in this huge building. Next thing you know, we're running 75 or so. And people are sneaking out the back door. And I remember walking around this big building, and, and uh, it was wintertime, and we had our children's church in this one room. We couldn't afford to run the heat in the building because it was such a big building. They had propane heaters. Remember them big old propane heaters? Some men had brought some propane heaters to heat the kids so they didn't freeze in children's church because we couldn't afford to run the, the heat or either the heat was broke, one or the other, the building was. And I was a new believer. I just didn't know any better. I was just excited to be saved. And man, it did, he could have just showed me pictures of the map in the back of the Bible and instead of talking, I would have just been getting it, you know. Oh, hallelujah, I'd have been shouting hallelujah for anything. I was excited that God was real in my life. And I was just too dumb to know any better to, to go somewhere else. And I guess I've always been like that. All my jobs that I've been at, it's like somebody's got to kick me out the door before I go. God has just got to lay down the law of it's time for you to move. You know, I've been married to the same woman. I've been in the same band. I've got the same kids, though I try to kick them out the door. No. Got the same mama back there. You know, just things don't change in my life. And I don't like, I don't, I, I, I'm a, I like the whole idea of being planted and rooted. And that's where I believe people grow. And it's proved out in my life. But anyway, what I'm saying was I was just too dumb to leave, I guess. I thought, hey, this is where I got saved. This is where I'm going to stay. When I see hard times, I don't run. This is my church. But a lot of people did. Now, I'm not going to judge those people. I don't know who they really were. I don't remember now. I know a lot of the people that stayed are still here today. But about that time, the Lord, I don't even like telling the story because it sounds like I'm bragging on myself. And I, and I told it one other time, but at the time, I didn't tell anybody. But I only say it because I think it'll help you. I had a bass boat. Had 150 horsepower mercury on the back. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> it, I was big into boats. I loved boats. I loved to go fast. You know, my eyelids flapping on the back of my head. Going down a... Yeah. I had a fast boat. The Lord spoke to me as a young baby Christian and said, I want you to sell your boat. He gave me a price to ask for it. And I want you to give the money anonymously to the church. I'm like, oh, I got... Oh, my goodness. Oh, and I had to ask myself, do I really believe in God? <laughs> and I did. I really believed in God. And so I put the boat up, advertised it for a price that was above what it was worth, and the guy came that week and bought that boat. And I took that money, I put it in an envelope, didn't put my name on it or nothing, stuck it in that offering plate. Wasn't long after that, we had to move out of that building, we went through a transition, and we ended up having church in a gym for a little while, that we was renting a spot, I guess, or they were letting us have, have church there for free out of the kindness of their heart, and then we ended up coming to this building. I don't know if that large sum of money that I gave was part of the reason why this church stayed together. I believe, it was, I believe it was probably a lot of those people that are still here today were the ones that kept giving sacrificially like that. They probably knew what they were doing to keep the church together. I was just, I didn't know any better. But I think about what would have happened if I wouldn't have been obedient to do the things that keep the church running Keep the church moving forward. Think about all the lives that have been changed over the last 18 years in this building. 
And if God asks you to give sacrificially, know that it, it, it's going to produce. He's never asked me to give like that again. Not that big. To give, I, I think it was a test of the heart because I love my boat a whole lot. You know, I really, really did not want to do that. But it was like, do you love me more? And in, in turn, I believe people that, are, that stayed with it through the hard times, I believe it wasn't just me because I know the amount of money I gave wouldn't have been enough to keep the church operating. I believe it was other people in here that gave sacrificially, gave probably all that they had. They believed that where they were at was the right place, that God had put them there, and they were going to stay thicker, thick or thin. No matter what happened, they were going to give their all, and there's been a lot of people that's given their all to this, this move that we're seeing now here in the Passion Church, that have given the temple tax, so to speak, was willing to do whatever it says, what it say, will provide for everything necessary for the work of the temple of our God. It's a hard place to close now. So let's let's recap where we where we went. All right, they separated themselves. These are things that they did and things that they vowed. Took an oath before God. We talked about how to take an oath before God. They didn't pick and choose, but they said we will obey all the commandments. No selective Christianity. They vowed not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers to separate themselves. And they promised to keep the Sabbath, keep God first place in their life keep balance, and they promised to give as, as necessary to keep the house of God alive and rolling. They put, they saw God's work as important. And next week, we're gonna, you ought to see the next thing that we're going to talk about. It's, it's the same along those lines of keeping God's work moving. They saw it as important. And when you, you know, so many people God's thing is just God's thing. And this is my thing. And I'll throw a few dollars towards God's thing or I'll come over every now and then. But God doesn't want that. He wants his thing to be your thing. He wants your thing to be wrapped up in his thing. He wants you to get involved in his business so he can get involved in your business. And it's really a whole radical new way of understanding what we're doing here. And so come back next week and we'll talk about that and hopefully we'll get to the part where somebody scaled the wall and we'll tell you how he got rid of them. Thanks for listening to the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it and that it inspires you to live out God's Word. For more information, visit us at www.mypassion.church.